All right. Well, good morning. Uh, we're continuing our study today through the book of Esther. So go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in Esther chapter 4. Honestly, today we come to the passage that um, most of you probably uh, looked forward to when, when we announced that we were going to go through the book of Esther. Maybe um, for some of you, this is the only thing you knew about the book was what is said in chapter 4. Uh, in it, there are two lines most often referred to and quoted about the book of Esther, uh, but it really is a somber chapter, and yet in the somberness of it, it's a key point for the joy that is coming in the book. And so let's read it and then get into it. Go ahead and stand and follow along, Esther chapter 4, uh, all the way through verses 1 through 17. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what, what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people." And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden, the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for 
the blessing of gathering together today and to look at your word, Lord. What a gift that is for us. We pray that you'd help us in this time. Lord, as we go through this chapter of this book in, uh, of Esther, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. We need your help, Father. Even as we look at a book where you are not mentioned, we don't want that to be true of us. We want to be a people where your name is known and where you are glorified and honored. And so help us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. This section of the book takes place in the city square. It was a public plaza open to all people. If you weren't here last week um, or were in the... Uh, childcare or something last week, just to catch you up, an edict has been issued that in 11 months, all of the Jews will be killed by the hands of the Persians. And that's where we pick up in chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in in sackcloth. Unlike the city that we learn from the end of chapter 3 that is dumbfounded, Mordecai seems to spring into action. He takes purposeful steps here to publicly demonstrate his feelings. Now we might ask, well, isn't he just grieving? Like, isn't this just sincere grieving? Isn't he just in despair? And he definitely is those things. This is legitimate sorrow, weeping, crying out in fear and in sadness. But notice what he does. He goes into the city wailing loudly and crying bitterly. He doesn't stay home and mourn as everyone else did. He went to the public view. He put on sackcloth, which was used to express grief and guilt and deep distress or despair. And this fact that he's there lamenting over the edict at the entrance to the king's gate certainly suggests that he no longer cares whether or not people know that he is a Jew. Now I want to pause here concerning the edict and the grief that we see in Mordecai and the Jewish people. It's a good time to remind us that this is not something the Jewish people hadn't experienced before or after. Their history is one of being marginalized, hated, killed, abused, and denied freedom. Certainly, we could highlight the atrocities that took place with the Holocaust, and that is a horrible example, but there are so many more within the pages of Scriptures and outside of the pages of Scriptures. There have been countless times where they have mourned because of loss or because of the threat of loss, and that's what's happening here. You notice that by dressing himself himself in clothes of mourning, in sackcloth, 
Mordecai excludes himself from access to the king's gate. Verse 3, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Typical signs of mourning are present here. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, weeping. But there is no mention of praying or calling out on the name of the Lord, calling on God for His help. God is not mentioned in the book. It's profoundly solemn. It is a sorrow that's hard to imagine. In verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Esther is secluded in the harem. So she doesn't know what was happening in the city. But she's informed by these young women and eunuchs about Mordecai and likely about other Jews in the city. You can see from the context here, she seems to be on good terms with those around her just like she had been with Haggai. But it says that she was deeply distressed And that word in Hebrew literally means writhe in fear. The knowledge that Mordecai and all the other Jews are mourning puts literal dread in her heart. She knows that this must be a sign that something terrible has happened. She doesn't know what it is. And so it says she sent him garment. She sent him clothing to put on instead of the sackcloth. Now, that's, that, that's not saying that, that she does this because she wants some kind of a quick fix. Just, just get dressed and, and get yourself together, Mordecai. She, she sends that to him because if she is to learn what is happening about the circumstances from Mordecai, the one person she trusts the most, if she's to learn what had happened, then he would have to be able to enter the king's gate. And therefore, he would have to dress in a way that was appropriate and permitted for him to enter the king's gate. And he could not enter wearing sackcloth. So she sends clothing and hopes that he will change and they will be able to interact again. He refuses. Verse 5 continues, Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Esther cannot leave the harem. Mordecai cannot enter it. And so what are they to do? If they're to communicate, it must be through an intermediary who has access to both places. And that person is Hatak, one of the eunuchs. And so she sends him to find out what is going on. What is this all about? What is happening here? Verse 6, Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Now this meeting between Mordecai and Hatak takes place in a very public space in front of the king's gate, a space that will become very important to Mordecai later in the story. Verse 7, and Mordecai told him, 
all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And by those words, all that had happened, it's possible that Mordecai at least hints that from his perspective, this whole ordeal, this crisis had started with him. And that he's still in the center of it. And that, that doesn't at all mean that he's regretful. We'll see in this chapter and in the rest of the book, we notice that he never apologizes to Haman. He never attempts to make things different with Haman. But it, it may be that he's acknowledging here in this verse. Again, we notice that Mordecai has learned all of the details, including details about Haman's bribe money. We're not told how he knows that, but he knows and relays that on. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. He gives this official copy of the written edict for Hatak to explain to Esther and he's asking her to forget his previous instruction of not letting people know that she's Jewish, no longer hiding her identity, and to risk everything by identifying now with the Jews. Remember, they didn't know that she was Jewish. And so even by identifying with them now, he's asking her to risk her life. Verse 9, Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Now, in the verses that follow, 10 and following, there's a change from indirect speech to direct speech between Esther and Mordecai. We still see that there is someone going back and forth relaying these messages, but it, it's, it's written in, in, in a way that it reads as if they're almost together. They're right next to each other. The actual words of Mordecai and Esther are recorded so that we see the heightened drama in the midst of it. How intense these circumstances are. Verses 10 and 11. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now Esther, we find out here, has enough authority to command her servant Hatak to to go and return to Mordecai and send messages. But her authority in the king's court is no greater than any other of his subjects. She says that if any man or woman goes to the king, even a woman of whom the king may be enamored, Esther, even Esther, has no special privilege in this regard. She says at the end of verse 11, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It's a long 
time. And is a reminder for us of how awful the circumstances are in the kingdom. How awful King Ahasuerus is. That doesn't mean the king has been alone for 30 days. It means he's not calling for Esther to come. He's calling others from the harem to be with him instead of her. Even though she was queen, her access to the king was restricted. Remember I, I asked in the sermon where Esther was chosen as queen, when it says that the king loved her, does he love her the way that that Jacob loved Rachel? Or how Amnon loved Tamar? The answer seems to be how Amnon loved Tamar. It's most certainly not the love of Jacob for Rachel. This is not a picture of love at all. The reading here of it seems to mean that Esther would presume that she would receive the death penalty just like any other man or woman if she goes in to see the king as Mordecai had suggested unless she's invited, which she has not been. Esther, we see, hesitated here. Her first thought in hearing this from Mordecai is not the deaths of all of the rest of the Jews, but of her own deaths. She's not certain she wanted to take such a risk, and that is completely understandable, right? I mean, upon hearing this, that's understandable. Verses 12 through 14 continue, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai responds with three main points. First, Esther's own life is in danger. Second, the Jews will be saved with or without her. And third, her very purpose in life may be at stake here. He's he's arguing that the danger is greater, or at least as great, for Esther if she refuses to go to the king. He's saying, you're not going to be saved just because you're in the palace. You will suffer the same fate as any other Jew. personalizing the danger for Esther. He says, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now, there is vagueness here, okay? What he's saying is, regardless of Esther's actions, Mordecai's seeming certain that God's people would be preserved. If she failed, it would be to her detriment, but the Jews would would be delivered another way. Now, the question is, does does Mordecai mean here that God will deliver them? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know what he means. One, One commentator writes this, there is simply nothing in the story even suggesting that the narrator characterizes Mordecai as a man of such firm faith and piety. 
Now, we know this is the Bible, so we want to read that into the story, but we are literally not told about any faith in Mordecai in any part of the story. We just, we're just wanting to kind of include it there. We find ourselves wishing for clarity and more specific details, but none are given. We don't know. But he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is one of the, the two best-known quotes from us. Maybe it's the most well-known. If I perish, I perish. But one of the, probably the best-known, okay? We'll say that in, at Cornerstone, it's the best-known, okay? But he's saying to her, you didn't attain your royal position in order to be saved apart from all of the Jews. Maybe it's that you received this position that you might save all of the Jews. It's a wonderful statement, and it reinforces that the many coincidences of the story are moving toward a purposeful, providential, happy ending. Verses 15 through 17, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, Esther here takes up the challenge, as fearful as it may be. Her commitment is expressed by the phrase, if I perish, I perish. What an incredible moment. There's so much strength and courage in that statement. If I perish, I perish. And so she instructs Mordecai to gather all of the Jews in Susa to fast on her behalf. And the fast exceeds the expected norms. It's, it's to be a three-day fast rather than just a one day, and it, it extends all hours of the day and night. The severity of the fast matches the severity of the situation. Now, we again, we ought to ask, is there some reason to think that they are calling on God as the Jewish people here? And yes, there is some reason. Prayer is usually in the Bible the principal purpose of fasting, but we are not told that they are praying. If there was ever a place in Esther to make reference to reliance on God, this is the place. And the author doesn't do it. We could also say that there is some reason to think that they are calling on God because of other evidences or examples in Jewish history throughout the Bible. Where trials and tribulations come and they fast and they pray calling on Yahweh. But there is also much history where they don't where they call on other gods, where they try to depend on other gods. 
And so I'm reluctant to force it into the text here. And I'm reluctant for one primary reason. We do not want to confuse what God clearly does as being a response to their fasting and possibly calling out to Him. No, God has been working to this end long before they call out to Him if they actually did. And we're not told that they did. What we're told and taught in the book of Esther is that God is the one who is faithful. God and God alone is the one who is faithful. If I perish, I perish. Esther is resigned to the possibility of perishing if she doesn't go to the king. It is amazing to see the growth and determination in her in such a short time. She is a strong woman willing to put her life on the line for the sake of her people. And then the chapter ends in in verse 17, indicating that Esther is assuming responsibility and Mordecai goes and does as she commands him. It's incredible. What do we learn from this text? I think we can learn a lot, but primarily I want to focus on what we can learn about God. Again, although God is never mentioned in the book, we can learn about Him from the book of Esther. First, though, let's consider the statement for such a time as this for our own lives. Now, don't get carried away here. It's it's not a point where you should ponder how the Lord has placed you on this earth to save an entire nation from genocide. That's not the point here. But there are things we ought to consider as we consider Mordecai's words to Esther for such a time as this. We ought to ask ourselves, what work has God determined especially for me to do because He has purpose that I live in this particular time and place? We know that that's true. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, the Lord determines both when and where we live. The time that we live in and the space that we live in. God determined that. The places where we are, the positions that we hold, the people that surround us have been entrusted to us for the purpose of gospel advancement. How are we responding to that truth? Knowing that God purposefully put you in the places that you are in in this season of history. Yes, Esther will be used to save a nation, but what about you? Could God use you to save an individual placed in your life? The question is true for all of us. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? I want you to see how the gospel can be seen in this chapter. 
We're called for gospel advancement. Let's look and see how the gospel can be seen here. In verse 5, I mentioned that if Esther and Mordecai are to communicate, it must be through an intermediary who has access to both places. That's true of us all as well. Mordecai couldn't enter the king's gate because of his attire. He needed someone to go between. He needed a mediator. We too could not enter the king's gate because of our sinful attire. We needed someone who had access to both this world and to heaven. And that's Jesus. That's the story of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin who knew no sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only that, but for Jesus, becoming our mediator didn't merely require the possibility of His death, it required the certainty of His death. Jesus never says, if I perish, I perish. Jesus came knowing, I will perish. For my sheep. Tim Keller writes, Esther saved her people in two ways. Identification and mediation. And that's the story of Jesus. That's the story of the gospel. Jesus identified with sinners. In the same way that Esther, in identifying with the Jews, puts her life at risk. Jesus identifies with sinners knowing He will have to die in doing that. And in doing that, He mediates for them to be saved. He was treated as a sinner and and in doing so invited all sinners to come to Him to be forgiven and freed and to have eternal life. That's the glorious truth of the gospel. That we're not left outside the city gates wishing and hoping and being told, change your clothes so that you can come into the kingdom. No, Jesus comes and gives us clothing, grants us clothing that brings us into the kingdom because of His sacrifice, not because of our work. God made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might be called the righteousness of God. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. And as we prepare to take the bread and the cup, let's consider how Jesus identified with us. Sinners. Broken people. He identified with us to make a way for us to know God and to be with Him forever. And what a blessing it is that we can fellowship, that we can can experience the fruit of what He did, even through the Lord's Supper, that we can fellowship with the King as we partake of the bread and we take of the cup. And so I would encourage you, if you don't know Him, if you're, if you're still standing outside the King's gate, feeling like you could never go in, then today the good news for you is that you can have fellowship with the Lord. You can be forgiven. Jesus has made a way through His death and through His resurrection 
from the dead, that whoever comes to him and trusts in him will be saved. And so today, instead of coming when the rows are dismissed and taking uh, the, the bread and the cup, today consider Jesus and consider surrendering your life to Jesus. For those of us who do know the Lord, then as we hold the bread and we hold the cup and and we prepare to take it together, let's rejoice in the truth that we have fellowship with Him. Paul, in writing 1 Corinthians 10, says that each and every time we do this, is it not a participation in the body and in the blood of Jesus? And that word participation literally means fellowship. Isn't this a fellowship that we have with one another and with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Let's consider that and what he's done to accomplish that for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good, and every single thing you do is good. Even as we study things that are really hard and really bad, you are the good in the midst of everything. And so we praise you, and we thank you for the hope that we have in you and in you alone. We pray that you'd help us as we prepare to take the bread and the cup now, Lord. Prepare our hearts. Help us to remember rightly the sacrifice of you, Jesus. That your body really was broken. Your blood really was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And help us to remember with great joy as we fellowship with you in the bread and the cup today. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.